Well, thank you so much for joining another episode of First Generation. I'm Darian Shirazi, and I have Erica Johnson today, uh, one of the founders of Modern Health, which is a newly minted unicorn and a really interesting company in the mental health space. She's also an investor and advisor to a number of health startups. We did overlap in college, but I did not know Erica at Berkeley, and she's kind enough to come on today to tell her story her background, and also about her family uh, being a first-generation person herself. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Erica to introduce herself and tell a little bit about uh, who she is. Yeah, thank you so much, Darian. And actually, I was thinking about it the other day. A lot of the founders that I currently advise, all of them actually come from underrepresented groups, immigrants, women, folks from the BIPOC community. So I'm super pumped to be a part of your podcast today. Um, Thank you. We need to get all of your friends on this show too. This is going to be perfect in terms (laughs) of lead generation for me. (laughs) Oh, easily, easily. So a little about me. um, I spent the majority of my career actually working at the intersection of neuroscience and technology. In essence, just building brain health tools, whether that was at UCSF, at Stanford, Um, with industry partners like Apple, Microsoft Research, or Quest, uh, before I ended up launching my own company. But I grew up in a small town, Union City, California. And back when I grew up there, um, it was filled with tulip and daffodil farmers and a drive-through movie theater. (laughs) There's this cute historical railroad area of town where Charlie Chaplin used to film his old black and white movies. But really, my parents moved (laughs) <laughs> wow, I didn't really know that. my parents moved to the Bay Area though because it was so culturally diverse. I mean, my best friends growing up were immigrants from Taiwan, Karachi, Pakistan, Hyderabad, India. So I had this very colorful upbringing where I was celebrating the Lunar New Year with my family to Eid Mubarak with Aisha and her family or Diwali with Kanera and her family. Um, but really, I grew up with Mandarin Chinese as my first language. I'm fluent. And even though I go by Erica Johnson now, some of my early childhood wow. friends used to remember when I went by Xiu Ying Johnson for a number of years. It was spelled uh, X-I-U-Y-I-N-G. Huh. So I might be mixed by background, but I've always strongly identified as Asian American and now first generation. Um, you- wow. And and so your your mom is Chinese and and your father is is also or or is it, it, it tell, tell tell me a little bit about that story. Yeah, my parents met in the melting pot in New York. My dad's side of the family they're Swedish Scottish. They're all from the East Coast. Oh, wow. um, we're the only Californians on the Johnson side of the family. My mom's side of the family she's actually the first of nine kids to immigrate to the United States from Vietnam. So. She's Chinese Vietnamese. My oh, grandma wow. was from the Canton region of China, and my grandpa was half Chinese and half Vietnamese. So my parents were actually married for close to 10 years before they settled in the Bay Area. And then at one point, they even moved to Taiwan for a few months, but ultimately decided on the Bay Area because it's just so wonderful and culturally diverse. Um, let's see. My mom was one of nine kids to come to the United States. Um, She was an exchange student back in 1969. And she originally considered Montreal, Canada, because we had cousins live up there. But there were no online college applications back in the day. And she wasn't able to get her hands on any paper applications. 
But luckily, she knew a priest, a family friend who helped her apply to school at SUNY Rochester. Um, Before then, though, my mom's family homes were bombed by the communists twice. So the first time was when she was living in northern Vietnam, Hanoi, and the communists took over Hanoi. But then they fled to southern Vietnam. You know, my mom's side of the family, they're Catholic. Um, And so they fled with the Catholic Church in 1954 to Saigon. And then a few years after that, in 1975, her family lost everything a second time when their house was bombed by the communists when they were living in southern Vietnam, so Saigon. So they had to escape. And at that time, the Catholics were very scared of communists because there could be no freedom of religion. Um, And I'm sort of jumping into my family story here, but... By that time, my mom was working for a CPA firm in New York and decided to stay working on a visa. So she applied to sponsor the rest of my family. And so the rest of my family escaped communism and they love Americans because Americans offered them freedom. And my mom's family came over as refugees. If you do a quick Wikipedia search for boat people, they are literally refugees. They came over on a barge hauled by the U.S. Navy to Guam before they all came to the United States. So the whole family. Did they ever tell about those conditions and what it was like to be on that boat? It must've been horrible. You know, the one story I did hear, there was a lot of fear, but the one story I did fear was how much they loved the Americans. You know, um, the Americans, when they were getting on the boat, were handing out blocks of cheese and they had never seen cheese in their entire lives. And they thought it was so, wow. and so they would put it underwater and thought it was very strange smelling soap. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. But the it's, whole... uh, it's good to hear that they liked the, that the Americans treated them well, in spite of, you know, all the things we hear about how immigrants are treated today. I mean, that's... Oh, my gosh. Like, my whole family, they have so much regard for America, so much regard for Americans and our diplomatic policies. For example, um, you know, the Afghan folks and what's happening right now with Afghan refugees. It's just like, hey, come on over to America. They really appreciated how the United States handled um, the Philippines. You know, you come in and you give the country back to the citizens except under democratic tenants. So there's a lot of high regard there. Wow. And so um, parents came to New York, your mom was, was working at a CPA. And then how'd she meet, how'd she meet her, your, your, your father? Well, she finished her MBA and the rest of the family came over. They were all staying in a two, two bedroom apartment, in Rochester, New York. So imagine my grandma, two husbands of my aunts, and their two children. So 14 people total in two two-bedroom apartments. <laughs> so my dad started dating my mom at this time. They wow. were both working at the same accounting firm. And it was during this time that they started to date in New York. But when they recall their memories of early dating, he said it was a lot of fun because there's just a lot of family around. So they all started with nothing, but my mom helped her family get some of their first jobs in the United States. They just worked as chambermaids, dishwashers at restaurants, et cetera. But America has also been the land of opportunity for my family because growing up, I heard Mm -hmm. a lot of these stories. I got to know a lot of my aunties and one aunt who only graduated high school 
started her own wholesale company and restaurant and became the first self-made millionaire within our family. Another uncle started his own travel company. Um, Two other aunts became a psychiatrist and internal medicine doctor and started their own private practices. So truly, America has been the land of opportunity for my mom's side of the family. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you have a bunch of entrepreneurs also in the family, which leads us to to you. And so, you know, growing up, what were some of the things that your parents instilled in you traditions wise or um, how you sort of think about the world? I mean, one of the things I've always uh, felt knowing you as a friend is that you have an incredibly you're incredibly kind and also have a very strong sense of right and wrong. And, um, you know, I think that comes a lot with having immigrants as parents. I mean, they sort of it's it's really amazing how grounded immigrant parents can be. So tell me a little bit about those traditions and, and your heritage growing up that you noticed or that you still carry on in your current day, in your current life or in your life today. Yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful question, Darian. <laughs> and thank you so much. I, I truly feel the same way about you. Oh, thanks. Um, I think thinking about my upbringing, you know, I've always been very fascinated by language and culture. I used to be really annoyed with my parents for forcing me to speak Mandarin Chinese in the household. When I started picking up English from the schools and I started speaking English at home, they would literally tell me, like, we don't understand what you're saying. Use Chinese to talk to us. And of course, oh, wow. they're being facetious. They understand and speak English, but they really just wanted to enforce, you know, speaking Mandarin at home so that I would be gifted another language. So I think you know, seeing how language and culture impacts the brain and development and self-esteem and youth. I think there's a lot of psychology research now that shows that bilingualism and biculturalism has a positive impact on kids' self-confidence. So that's what eventually led me to study neurobiology and study Chinese at UC Berkeley. But really, Mm -hmm. they raised me with a few values, right? Always know who you are. And I was raised... Asian American. Number two, um, humility, just be humble throughout life. Number three, learning is definitely a privilege and a value. So um, growing up, my parents were always very engaged in hobbies, whether it was learning how to play guitar or play the piano. They would take dancing lessons together, garden together. Um, I always saw learning as fun. And so my punishment growing up was having the books taken away from my room and I would not be allowed to read anymore. (laughs) So I think that has translated into my career. And I've built my career around you know, making brain health tools and applying these brain health tools to research. So bridging that gap between technology and neuroscience and psychology to make sure that we help improve people's lives. Um, But oftentimes, Darian, (laughs) I've learned it the hard way. I think being frugal and being humble, some of these values that you're taught from an immigrant parent can often be at times at odds with building a venture-backed company, right? As a female founder, especially, I have to talk about my accomplishments. I have to talk about how I'm going to spend millions of dollars and apply all this money. So I can't necessarily be um, penny-wise and dollar-foolish, 
I think that's the same. Well, maybe expand on that a little bit more. Like, do you feel like there were a lot of hurdles for you to build a company when, and, you know, the sort of, you were disadvantaged in some way. I'd love to, love to hear more about that because my, my partner, Wenwen at Gradient, she also feels that way sometimes too. And she's been, you know, quite successful. You've been quite successful. Maybe talk a little bit about that because I'm sure there are um, uh, younger women entrepreneurs that, that want to build companies and, and maybe feel like there are a lot of, th- lot of obstacles in the way and how you overcame them. That's a, that's a really interesting question because I think it's a muscle that I've had to exercise over time. Um, a long time ago, I used to be bashful about all the publications I have in the field and my research impact score. I used to be bashful about all the partnerships and products that I've launched. You know, um, I'm talking about years working on the brain health assessment, and now it's launched in eight different countries all around the world and subsumed under Obama Healthcare. I've built brain health tools with Apple Health, Quest, and Microsoft Research. And we can now differentially diagnose different kinds of brain cognitive disorders. So I'm very, very proud of taking something that is like open source and then also making it, you know, cross-cultural. And that's really, really been my ethos in building products in this day and age However, I have to be honest, Darian, um, I think my love of learning and research, I've always been like very heads down building. I haven't necessarily noticed that I'm one of few women in the room with scientists or engineers. I've been very, very fortunate to have female mentors. You know, one of my earliest mentors at UCSF knew that I loved programming. And so she sat me down with the director of technology and innovation at UCSF. And this was expensive for her as a hire, but I literally pair programmed with the director of technology and innovation at UCSF for three months to build some of my first neuropsychology tasks in Python. So I never will forget like the mentors that got me to where I am today, which is why I just, my goal is, you know, I mentor through Google's Technovation and I speak in Oakland to underprivileged girls through MIMS, a program called Mentoring in Medicine and Science. All they really need to see is, hey, Erica looks like me. Erica talks like me. I can do the thing that she's doing. So I think that if you're able to find other mentors in the field, it's not so lonely. And so. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, thank you so much for doing that. I, I feel like there need, it's just, it's just very tough to, to overcome some of the obstacles considering how the world works. I mean, I, I sort of feel like you are the prototypical, prototypical example of someone that has overcome a lot of these obstacles and it's great to see. I mean, it's good that you're also giving back to the community. Um, and the the pair for those who don't know what pair programming is, it's 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 the uh, it's working side by side with somebody else to sort of uh, on a specific code or amount of code or, or or a specific program, so you can sort of solve the program together. And that must have been fun because you were collaborating with another person that you really looked up to. And that showed like mutual respect that you probably couldn't have, yeah. it wouldn't, wouldn't have been normal if you had been working independently. So that's very cool. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about um, how you decided to start a company and what your parents said when you wanted to start a company um, and uh, w- what led you to want to start a company. <laughs> 
You know, a lot of people ask me this and I've spent a lot of my time actually building tools within academia and collaborating with industry. It's all very slow moving, as you've probably heard over and over again, but it's not too different from just the startup world. Um, I've always been a huge consumer of Paul Graham's essays. So geeked out to a lot of his essays. And around that time, yeah. I was learning Python and saw the power of software. Um but really, what I was doing in my roles at the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute or UCSF or Stanford, I was building these prototypes, essentially these MVPs, like these very scrappy pieces of um, software. And then I was launching that with research coordinators and research assistants who would test that with patients and or normal control subjects. And once I collected enough data, I could analyze that, submit that for results for funding. And so you would start small, you would have maybe a catalyst award, and then you apply for a K and then an R01 with your team and so on and so forth. And that track closely matches, you know, pre-seed and seed and series A, series B and, you know, the private sector. So really what I was doing, and one of the skills that I'm most grateful for during my time within academia is learning how to recruit and build world-class teams. And so recruiting teams to work with us and to work um, on scaling the projects, I didn't realize that's actually what gave me a competitive edge in building my own company. I knew exactly how to make a candidate feel special, seen and heard and walk them through the process. And when I wanted to close a candidate, I knew that I had to move really, really closely. So I would say that the reason why I decided to build my own company, um, frankly, you could launch things out into the wild and get a lot more data a lot faster, make a tremendous impact in people's lives a lot faster. It takes a longer time to commercialize something within hospitals and academia. Um, I felt confident in the skills that that I already had. Um, And then the timing was just right. You know, I'd spent a lot of my career in building software to diagnose brain disorders. And then during my time at Stanford, I had started to dive more into preventative solutions in educational technology and in environmental neuroscience, which is just a fancy way of saying, how how does going outdoors in green spaces actually impact creativity and decrease depression and anxiety? So it was around that time that I started getting more into the mental health literature. It was just really a perfect culmination to start a mental health company. And in starting any company, what do you do first? Just like talk to users, do a lot of user research. So I knew and had heard from a lot of friends that it was really difficult to get mental health care. A lot of folks were struggling to find therapists. And when you did find a therapist. They had long wait times and long wait lists. It took maybe two to three months to see one, and it was very difficult to get it paid for. So I talked to a lot of users, specifically launched a survey, Mm -hmm. and close to 1,000 millennials and Gen Z filled out that survey and told me what exactly they wanted in a modern mental health platform. Talked to about 40 therapists to learn what their pain points were. And then, of of course, talked to employers to learn what their stance was on paying for a mental health benefit. So after learning more about the three-sided marketplace, essentially built out the MVP and launched it out into the wild. And 
got a few customers. The rest is history. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, it's amazing. I mean, it, so, so uh, just so for the listeners modern that don't know about modern health, even though it's very, very pervasive across every fortune 1000 probably at this point, or at least on the way to being so um, maybe just talk a little bit about what modern health does for, for employers. Essentially, Modern Health is a mental health solution. So the employer pays for the solution and employees essentially get matched to personalized mental health care, whether that's digital content, um, talking with your own personalized coach or therapist. Fantastic. And it's also raised quite a bit of money from some amazing investors like Founders Fund and um, and others, and now uh, is worth more than a billion dollars. So congratulations on the success. I mean, it's very, very tough to build a business uh, to that level of scale. So, um, but now maybe tell us a little bit about some of the things that really influenced your thinking around building the company. I mean, I know that this also, this company touches a lot of ethical concerns and also it helps people, it helps employees. Do you think that your family upbringing, being an immigrant, really helped you sort of think through this problem? Do you think you were uniquely positioned to build this business? I sort of have always felt as though you were, not only from your interests as a, in, in academics, but also just your upbringing. Oh, 100%. I mean, this all goes back to being bilingual and bicultural. Um, and I see that as a competitive advantage these days. And of course, my parents instilled in me certain values, like just integrity, consistency, practicing what you mm-hmm. preach. So and foremost, my entire career, I've always been trained in HIPAA, which is um, some protecting patients' rights and protecting patients' data, right? That has to come first, even in the wild west of digital health, because even though you're building a product, it's not just a cupcake company. You really have to think about patients and will this actually improve their lives? Essentially, there should be a digital Hippocratic oath for behavioral health tech these days. Um, Right? It should exist. I mean, you read some (laughs) of the terms of services and privacy policies for some of these companies and their security standards, and it's just um, abhorrent. But I do think that regulation and the Biden administration, that's a story for another day, I do think that regulation will probably be coming. Um, The FDA is pretty advanced. Right. And this this topic is also incredibly timely in terms of ethics with regards to health tech companies. I mean, with Theranos, the trial happening right now, that's a perfect example of sort of the evolution of Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley used to be this place where you'd build a software company and the worst that would happen were that it wouldn't work or there were business impacts or investors would lose money. Now there are real health concerns if you build a health tech company that harms people. Um, Maybe speak to that because you've essentially said that and you innately clearly believe that, but maybe talk a little bit more about that nuance that's happening in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think there's this concept of um, sometimes, you know, the market will lead the product, but it's very dangerous in digital health tech. And I do think that buyers um, and payers are becoming more sophisticated. So these slower solutions who are taking their time to actually validate their digital health interventions and partnering with uh, research institutions to validate their products 
I believe that they will be rewarded later on. Because at the end of the day, if you're promising something that you can't necessarily, um, if you're selling something that you can't necessarily deliver on, um, especially when patients' lives are on the line, that can be very, very dangerous. And I'm sure, Darian, you can think of some of the most extreme examples, right? I think there was a meta-analysis paper done on some of these apps that have been launched on Apple Play and Google Play. And if you research these mental health apps and they list a suicide prevention Mm -hmm. crisis hotline, you call that hotline, it's not even up to date. It's it's a pretty important abhorrent number. And I don't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but the majority of these um, hotlines aren't even up to date. So that's just an extreme example of when things fall through the cracks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting, it's going to be interesting to see how Silicon Valley reacts to this. I do feel like Y Combinator has done a good job of picking founders that do care about this issue because the, the companies that have not really worked out um, where, or have harmed patients or have been sort of on the wrong side of history here, like uh, Theranos or Ubiome, the companies that I feel like have really done well are YC ones because they've sort of been screened by YC partners as well. Do you feel like that has been a screening mechanism for this like ethical lens that needs to go around digital health companies? I'm seeing some companies do it right. And, you know, frankly, YC is scaling and it's harder and harder to do thorough due diligence. But one thing I really respect about YC, and we learned about this on the very first day, is the founder code of ethics. And there's there's a very strong code of ethics. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's public or not. I can do a quick search for it. But um, there are certain tenets in building a company. And if you don't abide by the certain code of ethics, if you lie, then you'll eventually get blacklisted or <laughs> kicked out of Y Combinator. So I really appreciate um, the fact that they're right. very explicit about, you know, harm and just like building a good company the ethical way. Right. No, totally. I, I absolutely agree. So so now, you know, you feels like you've done everything right. You know, went to Berkeley studied, you know, got, got an incredible education, built a billion dollar company. What, what next Erica? Now, now what, what are you going to do next? I mean, it feels like you've, you've been part of, you know, Obamacare policy as well. I I don't know. It it seems as though everything you touch turns to gold. So what else, what is the next thing we can watch you do? Oh my goodness. And (laughs) that is definitely not the case. I'm very open about my failures and, you know, I actually have uh, bad luck before I get good luck. And so if we could spend an entire (laughs) podcast about all the times I've failed. Um, But what's next is I love taking my insights from the past 10 plus years to actually advise folks across different um, underrepresented groups and to angel invest across the digital health space. So like you, I am very much a founder servant and hopefully... (laughs) <laughs> it's very rewarding for me, but I definitely have a couple more companies in me. So stay, stay tuned. That's awesome. And uh, so let's, you, as the last sort of set of questions, as we pivot more towards talking about the country and the future, uh, we've seen some pretty incredible change-ups in our political environment over the past five years and I feel as though we we have lost yeah. our way in a lot of ways as a country, mainly because it used to be a great place for immigrants to come and build their dreams. 
I, I feel as though it's the, the country mm-hmm. I feel the most safe still. Um, and what do you think the United States should be doing? Do you think we've, we've lost our way? Do you think immigrants should still come here? Um, and what could we be doing better to, to make more, to enable more people like you and your family to come here and, and build their dreams? Oh, I remain an optimist, but like you, um, I remain a cautious optimist, right? I do think that America is wonderful and I think there is room for improvement, but there are also several things here that people take for granted, right? In talking to my family and for folks who have lived Mm -hmm. in other countries, simply having the infrastructure for garbage bins or for rest areas along the freeways, these are amenities that I even take for granted on a day-to-day. Um, my mom's cousins who ended up settling in Montreal, Canada, that was the other place she could have potentially land. Um, they couldn't even get their first COVID vaccine until two months ago in August. So even though our rollout hasn't been the best, um, it's still great, relatively speaking. Um, I think the thing that worries me most today, and we see this all across the news is probably misinformation, and we see so many people act and vote based off of misinformation. And I saw this firsthand with certain family members who have such a disdain for communism that they came close, Darian, to voting for Trump. And it required months of talking wow. to them, months of emails, months of showing them that what they were consuming was wow. actual propaganda, showing them um, where the source was coming from and just fact checking. It required a lot of work. But they thought that Trump would protect Taiwan from the CCP. They were mm-hmm. solely consuming Facebook content. And immigration is another example of this, right? Immigrants come here wow. and have a profound impact on the economy. And they hold jobs that otherwise wouldn't be held. There's a lot of misinformation about immigration. Um, now, I don't know if this is a problem or an opportunity, but long-term, what can be impactful is how much immigration we have in the face of a declining birth rate. (laughs) Now, I know for a fact that I wouldn't have been able to build a billion-dollar mental health (laughs) company if it weren't for the hiring of the talent, immigrants and children of immigrants. So I experienced it firsthand. And then last but not least, I think... Yeah, right. That's interesting, that misinformation I did not know about with regards to Taiwan which is so hypocritical considering the fact that, you know, the pullout of Afghanistan, which was sort of orchestrated by the Trump administration was a green light to China to look at Taiwan as a, as a potential, you know, target. And I feel like Biden is doing the opposite by protecting Taiwan as much as he possibly can. So it's amazing that that information, misinformation really did stick with, with your, your community or your, Oh my gosh, 100%. And it took, you know, it took a lot of challenging their thoughts and saying that, hey, do you know how many allies the United States has? We have dozens around the world, I think 30 plus, like being a member of NATO. How many allies does China have? One. And you know who that is? North Korea. (laughs) So, I mean, the power and influence we have around the world comes from the relationships and the allies that we have with all these other countries. So... And our population being, you know, full of, of every community, right? Like we, we represent every community. So being allies is natural, right? So. Right. 
100%. And so, I mean, the reason why my family came to America and why my mom's family loves America so much, like America offered freedom instead of living under communist rule. Um, I chatted with her the other day Mm -hmm. because I told my mom I was coming on your podcast. And I said, why did you choose America, mom? And she said, (laughs) open-mindedness, like Americans embrace diversity. She listed off so many freedoms. She said, we have the freedom of speech here. We have the freedom of movement, simply the right to move freely within your own country, the freedom of religion. And then another point, after a certain amount of years, like how open are we that you can apply to get a green card and become naturalized? So it's pretty open in spite of everything else that you know, has been happening in the past few years, like over the past few decades, there's been a lot of progress. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think if we can get through this stage and, um, continue to show that openness to the world, I think we'll, we'll be in on a good path. It's just a question of whether we can serve, you know, sort of get around this blip in history that we've had with, with the past five, four years or so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're heading towards the end of the show. And thank you so much for your thoughts. This has been fantastic. If you could leave us with one, you know, one sort of thought around advice for immigrants, advice for people that are thinking about starting a company and coming to America. There are a lot of people, I think, that are afraid to come to the U.S. right now because of our politics. Maybe give them some, some hope and a little bit more of that optimism. Or what would you share with those people? Oh, well, I work with founders from all across the globe and they still come to California. They still come to the Bay Area to start their companies. (laughs) And so there is hope and people are coming back to the Bay Area to start their companies. Listen, like we still live in the largest tech hub here, you know, with Google and Apple being some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, And personally, as a founder, having learned a lot about incorporating a company and the rights conferred upon a company, our government very much still favors innovation. And, you know, we still have regulators working on big antitrust laws. So here we are reading on our LinkedIn newsfeed. We're celebrating these immigrant founders and their IPOs. And then just compare this with what's happening in China and government's big tech crackdown. So there it is. Come to the Bay Area. Right. I I wholeheartedly agree. Well, Erica, thank you so much. Your story is fantastic. Congratulations on all the success. And I'm sure that we will be seeing much more of you in the news in terms of new companies that you start and uh, more unicorns that are founded by you. So Thank you so much for all that you've done in, in the health tech space and, and looking forward to um, hearing the feedback from our listeners on, on this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Darian. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Eric.